0: Before we begin, I might just mention that we have full page outlines that were available for this afternoon, so if you didn't pick up a copy, I think there were a few copies left over uh, that were not inserted in bulletins on the table at the back. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, first of all. We're going to be both in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 this afternoon, but as we look at the picture that the New Testament gives of the office of elder, we discover that it gives us this picture in two different ways, and the first way is by giving us word pictures that describe the relationship between the elders and their people, and this is what we've been looking at in recent sermons, but then secondly, there is this list of qualifications for the office as found in these two passages, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. And this afternoon, we're going to begin to look at these qualifications, and our plan is to limit ourselves to three studies in order that we might keep to the calendar that has been announced. But before we begin, let's pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us that roadmap that guides us in such a momentous decision as a church. We thank you that we have not been left to grope about in darkness, hoping that we will do the right thing. But you have let us know what you are looking for in a man to shepherd your people. And we pray that you would help us to recognize that one that you have given to us and others, perhaps down the road, that you would also add to us. Guide us, we do pray, in the tired of this exercise by your word, by your spirit pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, As we go through these studies on the qualifications of the office of elder, I want to preface this message by mentioning two opposite extremes that we need to avoid. And the first extreme is that of regarding these qualifications as optional recommendations. As we begin to look at these qualifications for the office of elder, at the outset, we need to emphasize that these are not just ideals. These are not just goals that we would like to attain and try to attain. But these are qualifications that are required. They're essential requirements that must be met before a man is recognized at all. And so we read in First Timothy chapter 3, and verse 1, This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. But then Paul doesn't go on and say it, if he wants to be a really good overseer, there's some ideals, here's some pointers, and these are some ways in which he'll be better. And that's not the way he puts it. What do we read? Verse 2. A bishop then must be, and then he gives the list, he must be blameless, the husband of one wife, etc., And in the original, it's the particle of necessity, the Greek word dei, which is not optional. These are not just recommendations, they are requirements. And again, notice that Paul is not saying that if a man meets most of these qualifications, he will be recognized. No, all of these qualifications must be met. And the same thing is emphasized in Titus 1.7, begins the same way. A bishop then must be, and then the list is given. So the first extreme is just taking these as optional uh, pointers of recommendations, and that's the extreme we need to avoid. But then the opposite extreme is that we must uh, that we need to avoid is that of expecting perfection for the fulfillment of these requirements. And here I want to remind you that Christ was the only one who perfectly fulfilled the ideal that is presented by these qualifications. And among the imperfect elders that God gives us, we should look for a genuine resemblance between these qualifications and those that God would give us as our leaders. And at the same time, we need to remember that every godly pastor grieves over the ways in which he falls short of the perfect ideal. Now, in order to help us be realistic, let me give you an imaginary resume for a pastoral opening. Gentlemen, understanding that your pulpit is vacant, I should like to apply for the position. I have many qualifications. I've been a preacher with much success and also had some success as a writer. Some say I'm a good organizer. I've been a leader in most places that I've been. I'm over 50 years of age. I've never preached in one place more than three years. Some places I left town after my work has caused a riot and disturbances. I must admit I have been in jail three or four times, but not because of any real wrongdoing. My health is not good, although I still get a great deal done. The churches I have preached in have been small, although located in several large cities. I've gotten along, I've not gotten along very well with religious leaders in towns where I've preached. And in fact, some have threatened me and have even attacked me physically. I'm not too good at keeping records. I've been known to forget whom I even baptized." But if you can use me, I'll do my best for you, Paul, an apostle. Well, I hope this imaginary resume is of help in putting things in perspective as we think about our current pastors or concerning potential pastors. If you have a negative mindset, you could easily convince yourself that even the Apostle Paul would be unsuitable as a pastor. So as we try to avoid the extreme of regarding these qualifications as optional on one hand and the opposite extreme of expecting perfection in each one of these qualifications, and while we look for all these qualifications, we must also recognize that some of these traits will be present in one man to a higher degree than another man. One man might be unusually gifted as a student and as a teacher. Another is naturally a people person like spending time with people in their homes and so on. And Paul is not saying that all elders must possess an exceptionally large amount of all these qualities that are needed to carry out their tasks well. Pastors are not supermen, but all of these traits must be present at least to some extent. And so when you compare anybody that's being examined for the eldership, you don't have to say to yourself well I have a hard time seeing how he meets that qualification whatsoever it shouldn't be that he would not meet it in that way and yet it must be recognized that these traits are not manifested they're like the light that comes in a flash of lightning they're not manifested in that way but are rather graces of character that are like the sun that begins to shed its rays as it comes up over the horizon it grows stronger and stronger with each passing moment until at its zenith it blazes above us with the fullness of its light and heat. Now, we need to notice that what we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Titus 1, we also need to notice this is not an exhaustive list. We know this from the fact that we don't have two identical lists. If if they had everything in there and Paul was giving the list, you would expect that it would be the same in both places. But rather, these two lists, they give us several categories of vices that must not be present and categories of virtues that need to be present. And the detailed list of these two chapters, they give us specific examples of these categories. And as we go through these categories, there are six that we will look at. He must have, first of all, an irreproachable life. Second, a whole soul commitment to the truth. Third, a proven ability to teach. Fourth, a proven ability to rule. Fifth, a time-tested Christian experience. And finally, a good testimony with outsiders. And here I would like you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be following the order primarily this afternoon of what we read in Titus chapter 1. And I want to read verses 5 through 9. I'm not going to cover everything in these verses, but to give you the whole uh, field, let's uh, read those verses together. Titus 1 and verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. First of all, we want to look this afternoon, and this is going to take up our entire sermon this afternoon, we want to look at the fact that he must have an irreproachable life. This is the broadest category. It encompasses the most of, of these verses than any of the other points. He must have an irreproachable life. And the key word, in the translations that I the translation I just read to you, New King James, is the word "blameless" or "above reproach," as it's put in the New American and the ESV. In verse six, it says, "If a man is blameless." Verse seven, a bishop must be blameless. And First Timothy three two, a bishop then must be blameless. So you see, this is emphasized three times in these two passages. Well, does this mean then that the elder must be sinless? If that was the case, we'd have no elders. Nobody would meet that standard. Christ taught his disciples, even his apostles. The chief ministers at the very beginning of the New Testament church that they were to pray every day, forgive us our trespasses. Obviously, these are not sinless men. Now, does it mean that nobody ever says anything bad about those people? Well, if that's the case, how would Christ meet that qualification? They said lots of bad things about him. How would the apostles meet this kind of a qualification? It means, rather, that there must be no just cause of reproach against the man and the gospel that he preaches. The word that's translated blameless, it literally means not to be laid hold of. In other words, he is not... Justly open to censures. You can lay hold of an accusation and prove it. He is to be of such a character that he is not open to just criticism of such a nature that it would bring reproach upon the Savior. Enemies may bring all kinds of accusations, but these charges must may be proven to be empty and groundless whenever the matter is investigated in a fair manner. And with respect to his conduct, since his conversion, obviously there are sins that he committed before he was converted, but especially post-conversion, he must be the kind of person to whom no mud sticks if you try to nail him with some kind of a scandalous report. And here we're reminded of the prophet Samuel, who in his farewell speech throughout the challenge to his people, Here I am. Testify me in the presence of the Lord. Whom have I defrauded? whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe? He was a man of integrity. He was irreproachable in these matters. And he throws out the challenge, because they're looking for a king, remember, as if he wasn't good enough. And so he says, well, what can you accuse me of now as I leave this matter and I entrust it to a king? And they couldn't come up with anything by way of just accusation. Nobody could accuse him. And so it should be with the elders. It doesn't mean that they won't accuse him, but they won't have something that sticks. It should not be possible to prove any serious charge against them. There should be in him no obvious defect of character which the malicious man, whether within the church or without the church, he can exploit it to the discredit of the ministry of that man. Now, the reason for this is obvious. A scandalous person will never be able to do good to others. The hearts of men are prejudiced already against the truth. And blots on the character of the preacher, you see, they will prevent him from receiving the message he preaches. It will confirm the sinner in his rejection of the truth. And just as the wickedness of Eli's sons made the people to abhor the offerings of the Lord, the wickedness of preachers lead people to despise The gospel, even if a man were to preach with the tongues of men and angels, if his character has notable spots in it, observable spots, he will never be able to prevail with men, for men must be taught with their eyes as well as with their ears. But With this general qualification of blamelessness in mind, Paul then takes the time to explain explicitly what he means. And the elder must be blameless, he goes on to tell us, in two areas. In the area, first of all, of his home life, and then in the area, secondly, of his personal character. And First of all, there needs to be an irreproachable home life. Now, it's interesting that both in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3, Paul starts with the matter of family life. And the reason for this is that Paul sees the church as a family. It's closely related, and intertwined. And there's a parallel between uh, being a good governor of your own family and being a governor in the church, which is God's family. And Because the church is God's family, the way a man brings up his own family is something of a proving ground as to how he will govern and nurture the church. And if he doesn't have a family, the church should look for other situations in which he has demonstrated a proven ability to rule well. But the ordinary situation is that a man has a family. This is the setting in which Paul is uh, setting forth these qualifications. And as we consider this irreproachable home life, in the first place, Paul emphasizes that he is to be the husband of one wife. and This is emphasized both in Titus 1.6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. Now let me just mention before we go on, first of all, what this does not mean. It does not mean, first of all, that an elder must be married, or else he's disqualified. Paul himself did not use the right to be married. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Do not I have a right to lead about a wife, as Peter did? And it implies that he didn't have a wife, as Peter had a wife. Christ never married. Does this mean they were disqualified? Church history has given us examples of eminent pastors who were single. Richard Baxter, first twenty-one years of his ministry, were some of the most successful pastoring ex- uh, history ever recorded in 20, ce- in, in twenty centuries. He went into the, uh, the Ketterminster parish and and just started pounding away in homes and preaching. And basically there was a revival and it was almost like the whole community was converted under his faithful labors. But Paul is here writing of the ordinary domestic situation that a man usually is married and he has children, and the emphasis is upon the fact that he is to be blameless or to be above reproach. He cannot have, you see, a marital status that brings reproach upon his ministry, and so it doesn't mean that an elder must, must be married necessarily, or secondly, that an elder must never remarry. That an elder must have only one wife his entire life and never remarry after his wife dies or after a divorce that was on biblical grounds. It would be strange, you see, for the apostle of liberty who said that widows and widowers were free to be married only in the Lord 1 Corinthians 7.39, it would be inconsistent for him to say that and then now to deny the same liberty to, to potential office bearers. And it would be strange for the same apostle who said that a woman whose husband has died is not an adulterer if she remarries, Romans 7 verses 1 to 3, to now turn around and imply that some kind of stigma is attached to a pastor whose wife dies and he remarries. In the same way, it would be inconsistent for Christ and his apostle to grant their hearers the freedom to divorce and remarry. If there's adultery that has brought about, there's uh, unfaithfulness in the marriage or desertion as is described in 1 Corinthians 7. And then to turn around and apply that a man that does this is no longer blameless. He's first of all said, well, this is permissible. And then now he going to turn around and say, well, this, this is blameworthy. So why should remarriage be such a sin that is of all the sexual requirements it alone should be singled out? So I don't believe that the emphasis of Paul's what he's saying here when he says he must be the husband of one wife is upon the fact that he must be married or he must never remarry. But what then does this requirement mean? In the first place, it means that an elder must not have more than one wife at a time. This is the setting in which Paul wrote, He is not to be a bigamist or a polygamist. And this is the setting. It was a society in which bigamy and polygamy were rife. Marriage was undermined by frequent divorce also, and prolific adultery and rampant homosexuality. These these, These customs were so common that a sense of their sinfulness had been taken away from men's hearts and minds. The words of the famous Athenian orator, Demosthenes, perhaps the most famous orator. Maybe Cicero was the most famous of ancient times. But Demosthenes, he he reveals the problem. He says this. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our persons. But wives to bear us legitimate children. So it's just perfectly normal to have mistresses. It's to have concubines. But to get legitimate children, it's good to have a wife. This was the common expected morality of that day. And here's the situation that Paul is envisioning. A polygamist gets saved. He's got more than one wife. So what is he to do? Or what's the church to do? Are they to keep him out of the church because he has more than one wife? No, obviously, he's a true believer. He's repentant of his sins even repented of marrying more than one woman. And they're not going to keep him, therefore, from, from being added to the church. But then what will they do? Will they require him to divorce all of them except for one and then send away all the children away from, from him except the one that's, ones that came from that one? Well, obviously, that would be, be a terrible solution. Missionaries, you see, in primitive societies, even today, they face a similar problem to this day. So what's to be done if a man begins to manifest the graces and gifts that you say, well, this guy looks like you would be a good elder. We hear him teach, we hear him preach, we hear him uh, manifest these, these graces he, as he prays. And it, it, surely it seems like God is giving us a pastor here. And Paul is saying here, not so fast. He cannot be recognized under those circumstances as an elder. And why is this so? Well, such a man with his abnormal home situation, he would be setting forth a bad example. He would not be a model, you see, for emulation in the church. He would lead others to think that polygamy is all right. You see, elders have more than one wife, That would say. He would lead others to reproach the gospel. They'd say, here's a man whose lust is so unbridled, you see, he can't be contented with one wife. Is this man your leader so Paul's directive here is a reminder that notwithstanding its frequent use by Jews and elders polygamy has always been an evil thing we could go into the history of it in the Old Testament but just right from the very beginning the first marriage that was instituted it was between one man and one woman And the Lord expressly said that the two, he didn't say the three or four, shall become one flesh. And he charged strictly the man along with his posterity to cling to his wife, not his wives. So it wasn't God's intention right from the beginning that there would be more than one wife. And so this is the situation. He must not be a polygamist, he must have one wife and one wife only. If he has a wife. So it doesn't mean these things. But then it also means that an elder must manifest marital fidelity to his wife. He's to be the husband of one wife. Literally a one woman man. We would literally translate the original. Now we know that this qualification is more than just a prohibition against polygamy because of a phrase that is its counterpart in 1st Timothy 5 9 and we won't take the time to turn there but there's a parallel between this verse and 1st Timothy 5:9 that describes a widow a widow is to be taken into the number of those that are supported financially by the church only if she meets certain qualifications and one of the qualifications for supporting a widow is that she has been the wife of one man now Polyandry. Polyandry is having more than one husband. Polyandry was not practiced in first century Greco-Roman world. uh, Having more than one wife for a man, that was practiced all the time. But it wasn't acceptable that you see a wife would have more than one husband. So the issue you see is more than just whether she has one husband it also implies something else. It implies marital and sexual fidelity. She must be a one-man woman before she will be taken into the, into the number. And even so, Paul's stipulation that an elder is to be a one-woman man, it has more in view, I believe, than, than just avoiding polygamy. And that men could have intimate relations with women other than their wives, this was totally acceptable with the Greeks and the Romans. But that which was fashionable among the pagans, it must not be adopted by those that are elders in the church. And just as the command you shall not commit adultery is couched in marital language, but also encompasses war and other sexual sins, so this qualification the husband of one wife. And it boils down to this. It must be evident that the man under consideration has one woman in his heart in his mind, and in his bed. She's, he's a one-woman man. That's the point that Paul is emphasizing. And this is why a wise pastor won't counsel a woman that, he, that can't be seen by somebody passing by. It's usually good to either have people in the building or have your, the, his wife in the home. And this is why he will seek to avoid situations where he can be ensnared into even, uh, into, into even some kind of a romantic relationship. He wants to avoid the kind of intimacy, even if it doesn't go as far as the bedroom. He wants to avoid anything you see that would compromise his ministry. Adultery, fornication, and also emotional affairs are the shame of the modern church. In the post-conversion recent experience of a would-be elder, these sins must not be present. doesn't mean that if 40 years ago there was something we're not talking about that but anything that's reasonably recent must not be something that would be uh, be brought forth as a contradiction a man being considered for the eldership must be a model of marital fidelity and sexual purity and primarily i think it has to do with his post conversion life it is absolutely essential that a man has been faithful in this area And if he's he's had a faithful heart for his wife, he will be the kind of man that will have a faithful heart for the church. So the first aspect of an irreproachable home life is that of having faithful, is, is is being the husband of one wife. But now the second aspect of an irreproachable home life is that of having faithful children. We read in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, we just considered that, but now next, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And uh, this is the translation of the King James, the New King James, having faithful children. But you will notice if you have these Bibles in your laps, the New American reads, children who believe. Or the NIV, a man whose children believe. Or the ESV, children are believers. And these translations therefore imply that the children of an elder have to be all converted for him to be recognized as an elder. Now it's true that the Greek word pista, it may be translated faithful, or believing. It can be translated, eat both ways. It's also true that both uses are in the pastoral epistles. And so the context is the indicator as to which meaning is intended in this place. Is it saying that all of his children have to be believers, or is it saying that they are faithful children? And it's my contention that along with the emphasis of the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, that faithful is the intended meaning, not that they are all believers. How do we know that the children are faithful children? How does he go on to describe them? He says they are not accused of dissipation or insubordination. That's how, he, that's how he, It's proven that they are faithful children, Titus 1.6. And the emphasis is upon their external conduct, not on their internal faith being examined. What a son or daughter believes can't be visible to all. But whether or not children are faithful, that is, they are not accused of debauchery and insubordination, this is open to inspection. And likewise, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4 speaks of the overseer, and here I quote, having his children in submission with all reverence. And both places, the faithfulness of the children is evaluated on the basis of the way which they behave, their external conduct, and in particular the control that their father has of his children and their conduct. Of course, it doesn't mean that they're perfect, doesn't mean they never got a spanking in the day of their life, but it does mean, you see, that there needs to be evidence that these are not rebels. These are not children that are rabble-rousers and troublemakers. And in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, This word pistah means faithful, I believe, in the sense of being submissive or obedient, as a servant is regarded faithful who carries out the will of his master. In Matthew 24, verses 45 to 47, the faithful servant is busy doing what's supposed to be be doing when the master returns. That's his faithfulness, how it's manifested. it's It's his behavior. And one of the great lexicographers, actually two of them, Molten Milligan, they put together a work, they mention a deed of sale in which a slave is described, and here I read as faithful and not given to running away, that's the way the word is used in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6 the faithfulness of the child, the children that are there in his home is demonstrated by the fact that such children are not accused of dissipation or as the English standard puts it, debauchery. and the Greek word it means literally an inability to save. It's somebody that doesn't squander everything. He's, it's used as somebody that wastes his money, often with the implication of wasting it on pleasures, extravagant squandering on one's means. A, a son that just goes out and wastes everything and goes and gambles away everything at at Las Vegas. And somebody that's like the prodigal son that spends his inheritance and just goes out and and lives it up with women and wine and song and so on. He's not to be like that. This word is used in the New Testament in connection with drunkenness and related vices. The same word is used, this word that's translated dissipation or debauchery, it's used in 1 Peter 4.4. Peter describes this dissipation in, in the previous verse. He speaks of it as licentiousness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Elders' children must not have that kind of a lifestyle. And of course, this is those that are still in his home. It can't be that, you know, we, that we hold this over an elder for centuries, or I mean for decades after the children have left their home. But it must be evident that Children in the home are not wasting their money on prodigal living. They mustn't carouse with an ungodly into wee hours of the night dance clubs and drinking parties and and smoking pot and all the rest and and, and getting high with with all their friends. This must not be their lifestyle. They're not accused of this kind of debauchery. Titus 1.6 also emphasizes that children must not be accused of insubordination. Or rebellion, as the New American translates it. They mustn't be undisciplined, rebellious, disobedient children. The King James uh, says they must not be unruly. They must not be flagrantly rebellious and unruly, like a soldier that defies his officer and refuses to keep rank. And of course, it doesn't mean that there's has to be absolutely not a scintilla of rebellion ever in the heart of that of that child. But this rebellion mustn't be frequently and freely and characteristically expressed. It must, be, it must not be uncontrolled by the discipline of the father of the home. And notice this applies to children still living in the man's home. Having faithful children, Paul says. The Greek word for having, it refers to possession of persons that you have a close relationship with. He's only talking about children that are rightfully under the father's authority in his home. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 3, 4, it speaks of a man's rule over his own house. So I want to just ask, I should have given you a little bit of warning. I was planning on giving you a little warning. Why then does Paul start with this as being so essential? Why is it so important that an elder be a one-woman man and that he have faithful children? Children. We give you an opportunity to suggest reasons for that. Don't be afraid to state the obvious. Yes, Tony. Okay. Yeah, Paul explicitly says that later on. How can he manage the church if he doesn't manage his house? Amen. Yes, Leo. he got to set a good example and he can't have all the distraction in his life. Okay, if he's constantly embroiled in, in uh, all kinds of controversies, he's always down at the police office because of what his son is doing, how's he going to pastor? Uh, good, good, and then what are the people going to say? Good example, it needs to be maintained. Yes, Bob. Okay. yes yes yeah, you've got your little clan, your little family and then the larger family church, amen alright well uh, before we move on let me just uh, say that just a few things that some of this you've already mentioned but without this kind of a home life his respect is eventually going to be eroded in the church if he has so little control over his own lusts, he has to go out and get another woman. If he can't control his children, how can he be held in high esteem among the people of God? Elders are to be examples to the flock, First Peter 3, 5. From 1861 to this very day, it was interesting, I looked this up on the internet. In Edinburgh, Scotland, at 1 o'clock every single day, except for certain days of the year, a cannon booms. And people that are locals, they are not startled. Instead, they look at their watch to make sure that their watch is set just right. They set their watches by that canon. And people set their lives, you see, by the example that are, that are set before them as pastors. And this can't be so if the elder's home is in shambles. And also, we might might mention the how, how can he have the respect of outsiders? He's a representative of the church to outsiders. The honor of the church is of greater concern than the interest of the private person in his so-called ministry. And it is shameful if the conduct of his children prompt others to chime in with jokes about the preacher's kids. It can't be so with legitimate accusations against his home life. You mentioned already serving without distraction. We could also mention how can he show hospitality if his home is always in chaos there's always wars taking place. How can he counsel about rearing children? How can he give counsel about marriage if he doesn't know how to be married and how to be a father? How can he govern the church if he doesn't have the firmness to set limits for his children and yet do so in such a way that he doesn't make them hate him? How is he going to have the backbone to lead a church with, with uh, it, it, through its various dif- discipline issues and various issues that come up in the life of the church? If he's angry and overbearing with his wife and children, how is he going to avoid that among the people of God? So these are some of the ways in which, some of the reasons why this is absolutely essential. It was tempting for me to also just kind of start firing away about how all of us need to be good fathers and all of us need to be good husbands and wives. But I think you get the basic picture from what we've already studied. There's a lot, basically in every way. These qualifications are something that should be aspired to by every single person, every, every single man in particular about being the husband of one wife in the church. So first of all, as we consider that he is to have an irreproachable life, there needs to be an irreproachable home life. You can't bring just reproach upon him because of his home life. But then now in the second place this afternoon, I want you to notice with me that he must also be irreproachable in his personal character. There needs to be exemplary personal character in the man. And what we want to look at, first of all, and we'll get to the virtues, we want to look at the absence this afternoon of certain crippling vices. And these vices are mentioned um, not as a total list in each place, but in Titus 1.7 and in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3. And the first of these crippling vices that will cripple his ministry is obstinate opinionatedness. He's not to be self-willed, as we read in the New King James Version, New American, Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed. And this is translated arrogant in the English Standard. In the Greek word, it means self willed, means somebody that pleases himself, somebody that's willful. In other words, somebody that's obstinate in his own opinion. He's arrogantly, he arrogantly knows it all. And he doesn't need to listen to anybody, therefore. And perhaps it's because of this obstinate opinionatedness, because this is always rooted in his pride. The ESV, therefore, gives the translation arrogant. But self-willed or obstinate, I think, captures the meaning of the word best. And the same word is used, for instance, in 2 Peter 2 and verse 10, referring to the ungodly. They are presumptuous, self-willed. And how do they manifest this? They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They know better than everybody else, you see. They know better than all the dignitaries. They know better than the president. They know better than the pastors. They're wiser, you see, than everybody else. And they know better, you see, in their conceit, they're wiser than they consider, they won't even consider the wisdom of others. They obstinately dig in their heels. Well, the story is told of a light aircraft carrying four people. And in it was a pilot, and there were two young teenage lads, and there was an old Christian man. And as they were flying along, suddenly the pilot's voice crackled over the intercom. We've got serious engine trouble. We're going to crash. There are only three parachutes. I have a wife and a family who need me, so I'm taking one parachute. Goodbye. And so he jumps out. He leaves the two lads and the old Christian. And Immediately one of the teenagers says, well, actually, I have to tell you that I'm the brightest, most clever young man in the world. I have an IQ of 175, and the world needs me. I'm a great scientist, and I may well invent a cure for cancer. So I'm taking a parachute. Goodbye. And he jumps out. At this point, the old Christian man, he begins to talk to the remaining youngster. And he says, you take the last parachute. I'm old. I've enjoyed my life. I know that when I'm going to die, I'm going to be with the Lord, my Savior. So you take the last parachute. It's okay. And to this, the youngster replied, don't worry, there's no need for that. There's still two parachutes. The brightest boy in the world just jumped out with my haversack. (laughs) Well, this humorous story, it warns us, you see, against the danger of being overconfident know-it-alls. And when present in an elder, an elder is liable, you see, not only to jump without a parachute himself, but to lead others to do the same thing. Elders must be humble, teachable, open to correction. And this word, it not only depicts a person that thinks he knows it all, but also a man who proudly and obstinately insists on his own opinion, asserts his own rights, and is reckless concerning the rights and the feelings of others. The King James Version, he's often referred to, and there's this word, did you ever wonder what it means when you read the book of Proverbs, and it talks about a froward man. You, you look it up and you say, boy, I never hear people talking about froward people nowadays. What is a froward person? Well, it's a man that's so arrogant and so cocksure that he never imagines he can ever be wrong. He's stubborn. He's always right, you see. That's the perfect picture of a froward man. He's dogmatic on every issue. He can't distinguish between his own opinions and Scripture. He's closed-minded, unteachable, stubborn, Proverbs says he is wiser in his own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. Now, why must this vice be absent in an elder? I should have given you a warning again. I'm not doing very good tonight. This afternoon. Why can why why must an elder must an elder not have this kind of stubborn, opinionated as, as a characteristic? Yes. So no one person is omniscient. He needs counsel from others. Good good text. Yes. Well, you have other elders, you know, perfect situation, you have a multitude of elders yep. in the same church. So if you've got one guy who just thinks he knows everything, it's yep. just an unworkable situation. Yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why sometimes some elderships break up or at least there's a parting of ways eventually, yes. He needs to get along with his fellow office bearers. He needs to be teachable. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have any convictions. He won't stand for biblical convictions, but sometimes people, they can just dig their heels in about something that there's, there's not a shred of scriptural evidence about the point that they're, they're trying to establish. Anything else you can think about is why this is yes, Dick. Well if he's unteachable and he thinks his answers are all the best. During his counseling, he may just leave the people he's trying to counsel in the wrong direction and really mess up their lives and even hurt them. Yeah. You know, yeah, if he One of the things that is difficult for pastors sometimes is there's all these books out there about how to raise children, and there's some of them that are so opinionated. You got to do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, this one, two, three, four, uh, but it just doesn't work that way a lot of times. There's there needs to be an understanding of the different nature of children and the different uh, situations, and a person that's just an elder that just digs his heels in, he knows it all, he's got his rules, and he's just going to throw them out to everybody, and his system. If it's my way or the highway. It's, it's not going to work very well in, in giving counsel. That's a good, good observation. Yes, Tony. That shows he's not humble. Yeah. How can you be an example of one who follows a humble Savior if you're not humble yourself? Right. And, and the, uh, the say that God the proud Yeah. Yep. So Amen. Well, these are all good reasons might just add that he will be tyrannical and overbearing in the way he leads the church. He'll act as if questioning him is equivalent to questioning God. He won't be able to listen to the concerns of the people without lashing out against them and calling them rebels if they don't agree with his opinion. And this is no way to lead a church. And also he'll drive people away. It makes this person unapproachable. People will soon come to think, well, he never listens. He, he, he just is not a listener. He is the opposite of the, of the meek and the lowly Savior that attracted sinners to himself. They came to him because he was so gracious with them. And this man is behaving in the exact opposite way. He drives people away. And also this kind of attitude is the mother of errors in life and doctrine, strange opinions and schisms and heresies. How can he submit to the word when when it contradicts his own proud opinions and crosses his stubborn will. He's unwilling to have his opinions and actions checked and restrained by sound exposition of scripture and the wise counsel of others. In his commentary on Titus, that was preached in Cambridge, England, and then published in 1612, a year after the King James was published. The English Puritan Thomas Taylor wrote this. Whereas men think it is a note of learning and wisdom not to yield an inch in any opinion they take up, the Spirit of God regards it as a sign of folly. It is no other than the way of the fool which seems good in his own eyes. Indeed, Christians must, be as, must not be as shaking reeds, tossed here and there with every wind of doctrine, but yet it is a wise man's part to hear and try and not stick to his own counsel as a man wiser in his own conceit than seven men who can give a reason. For there is greater hope of a fool than of such a man. So there is this characteristic that must not be in an elder. You must not have this obstinate opinionatedness we've just spoken about. But now I want to mention just one other vice that needs to be avoided. We're not going to be able to get to the issue of covetousness and greed. At the bottom of the page, but there also must be the absence of abrasive hot-headedness. And as indicated in the chart that's provided in the outlines that we have provided, this vice is identified with four different Greek words, and we've given the translation of those four words. You can see them in the box ch- chart that they're at the bottom of the page, and the translation, you don't need to know the Greek. You can see how it compares in the various versions that I've picked out, versions that Are most representative, I think, in in, uh, the congregation at this place. Um, And the first is translated, and the first column is the New King James. It's translated, not quick-tempered. And the same translation is in the English Standard, the New American. And it's translated, not soon angry, in the Older American Standard, in Titus 1 and verse 7. So this is a man that is with a short fuse. He's got a hair-trigger temper. And this is not the kind of man you need as an elder. And a man with a short fuse, you see, is like a, a man with a bomb strapped to his back. You don't know it's going to go off, and there's a lot of people that going to get hurt as a result. So not quick-tempered is the first description. And then the next Greek word is translated in the New King James not given to wine New King James not addicted to wine, American not a drunkard, English Standard or no brawler in the old ASV and I mention the old ASV because I think it's probably the most accurate of all the versions that have ever been translated it's just the most strictly sticks to the Greek and so he is not given to wine, not a drunkard and then there is this no brawler And there's a reason why those two are related. The marginal reading of the American Standard, the Old American, is that he's not quarrelsome over wine. You see, the ideas of drunkenness and getting in fights, they go together. So the Greek philosophers they sometimes use this word for the drunkard to refer to the violence that comes from a drunkard, like a drunken rage. In 1 Timothy 3:3, the words that follow this word explain it best. In the English standard, it says he's not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. So the opposite is that he's not violent. If he's not a drunkard, it is gentle. New American, he's not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle. Proverbs 23, 29, and 30 says, Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has wounds without cause, those who linger long over the wine. A person that's an alcoholic is going to be a fighter. Somebody that gets in fights with people. As Philip Ryken puts it, men, the bullies are not eligible for ordination. An elder is not a browbeater. Men who are verbally or physically abusive cannot be entrusted to tend to God's sheep. And then thirdly, as we go through these words, the same. these are all describing basically the same trait that must be avoided. He is... Not violent, as the New King James puts it. ESV is also uses the same translation. Or not pugnacious, the New American. No striker, the old ASV. And uh, this word is used in both Titus 1.7 and 1 Timothy 3.3. And 3. the word, it describes a person that is quick to come to blows. A man that is ever ready with his fists. A bellicose person, a spitfire. He's like a backwoodsman of the former days. You, this is I don't know if this ever literally took place, but supposedly he would put a chip on his shoulder and he would dare somebody knocking it off. It would be his way of, of, of getting a fight with somebody. He's not a person that walks around with a chip on his shoulder, you see, always ready to lash out. And so as John Benton put it, puts it, a true spiritual authority has nothing to do with a clenched fist and white knuckles. And then the fourth uh, word that's found describing the same thing that needs to be avoided is he is not quarrelsome. New King James, ESV, translates it that way, and then uh, he is not to be con- un- he's to be uncontentious or not contentious, as the New American and the Old American puts it. And this is in First Timothy three, verse three. It's not in Titus one. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Paul uses a different form of this same word where he says, A servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to all. You get the contrast. He's not a quarreler or fighter. The opposite is true of him. He's gentle. He's able to teach, patiently enduring evil, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So an elder, you see, he needs to be somebody that's not a fighter. He's going to be somebody that's going to be bold and defend the truth, but he's averse to fighting with people, getting in arguments with people. And this qualification it goes even deeper than not using his fists. He needs to not have a heart that's ready for this. He needs not to be an explosive person that's always exploding again and again, especially it must never come out, in the public life of the church. You must not be eager to jump right in and argue fiercely over some kind of minuscule point. And at Ephesus, this is where Paul is writing to Timothy. He's at Ephesus. There were those that were given to disputes over genealogies and fables, these little things, 1 Timothy 1.4. There were those also who were obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. From which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, First Timothy 6, verses 4 and 5. And so an elder, needs he has to not be that way. He can't be abs, arguing over little things. And I, I get so disturbed even when I hear pastors arguing over little things and getting all hot and getting all defensive and so forth. It must not be that way. Timothy must not be like those people, Paul says. You must not be like the one that is always in a fight, whether with fists or with words. You mustn't agitate, irritate, and provoke people that differ from you over minor matters. Now, From time to time, a pastor is going to receive phone calls from people that are not interested in being instructed. They just want to argue. Sometimes they'll even catch him at the door. As they're on the way out from a sermon, there's something he said in the sermon, and they won't start an argument right then and there. And at such times, it's best for the pastor to patiently and plainly state what he believes is the teaching of scripture, and they just leave it at that. And the church, you see, is not a debating society. Elders mustn't allow themselves to get into the kind of arguments in which each person is talking over the other. We've all watched newscasts in which two people from the opposite that you can't even hear either one of them because they're talking over each other. They're not listening to each other. They're just arguing, and nothing comes of it. It's just a shouting match. And this might not be the characteristic of the man that becomes an elder in the church. And why is this so important? Well, if we had time, I would have you contribute, but it's time for me to wrap things up. So let me just mention in passing before we pray that this again makes a man not approachable. How's anybody going to go to him if he, if, if he thinks he's going to get a diatribe from that pastor? He's not going to want to go to that kind of a pastor. He will destroy the peace of the church, and nothing ruins the atmosphere of peace and fellowship and service than tension and strife. And he's a terrible example. How can he preach self-control to others when he can't control himself? He who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city... It is broken down and without walls, we read in Proverbs 25, 28. How opposite is such a man to the lamb-like, dove-like spirit of the patient, humble Jesus, that when he was reviled, did not revile again? Hundreds of slanderous accusations were met, made against Jesus, but never once, out of personal vindictiveness, did he lash out with bitter invectives. And again, how will such a man bind up the wounds of the souls of wounded sheep if he's always inflicting those wounds? There are people like, there's some you see that are like Peter with the sword. Peter, he changed. God transformed him. You Remember, he got out the sword to protect Jesus and they're like Peter hacking away, you see, even among the people of God. And furthermore, such a man is bound to come down on the wrong side, many times of many controversies because his passions are the best of him. He is a man that has no control of himself, and this means his even his reason is going to be affected by the way in which he conducts himself. As a pastor, calm inquiry is necessary to arrive at the truth. And if he's carried away with his passions again and again, he will be leading the church astray, jumping to the wrong conclusions. Well, these are two major vices. I trust you can see how the this is not optional here. You can't have a man that's an elder that is characterized on a regular basis, especially of these types of vices. Doesn't mean that a man never fails. Moses got angry. Doesn't mean that a man is perfect in these areas, but it does mean that this is not something that is a regular part of his life that everybody knows about. Is characteristic of that man. Well, I trust you can see that, again, this is an example of this isn't just for elders, this is for all of us to follow. These are vices that all of us need to avoid in the church of God. I'd be tempted to go into how this is so, but it's time to close, so let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given unto the church very clear directives that are very reasonable that are very, uh, we can understand why you've given these qualifications for those that would be elders in the church. And we pray that you would help us to take them seriously, that we would examine those that would be brought before us, not only now but in decades to come, by these standards and not go by our own wisdom. We pray that you would keep us as elders from these vices, that you would enable us to be more like our Savior and not be those that, that are always getting in fights, always in arguments, always those that are causes of trouble and contentions and woe in the church. Enable us also as elders to be faithful in our homes in every way that we might be examples to the flock. Enable all of us as your people to be examples to one another in these very areas. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.